Hello, welcome everyone to another episode of Curator's Choice. I'm your host, Ayla Anderson, and today we're going to be spending some time in Maryland at the Captain Avery Museum. And we're going to be speaking with Deborah Gangloff, and we're learning all about who Captain Avery was, how his home has been around since the 1800s what he did for work and what his family did. They were going to talk about the oyster wars of the Chesapeake Bay and learn a little bit about his family history that can be found in their Bible. And also we'll be talking about an amazing banjo that they have at the museum. If you want to see any of the pictures from today's episode, please go to www.curatorschoicepodcast.com and check it out on Facebook and Instagram. And I hope that you enjoy this episode as much as I enjoyed speaking with Deborah. She was a wonderful speaker, and I think the episode turned out great. So without further ado, let's go ahead and get going. So you are a little bit more familiar with the back east, back west, where I'm from. <laughs> yes. You were just talking to me about your PhD program you did there. Yes. Well, I have a PhD in anthropology that I received from Rutgers University, and I worked. Uh, I've always worked for nonprofit organizations, and really, the basis of why I do that is nonprofits change society, and they change society for the better, which is why they have tax-exempt status, obviously. Mm -hmm. And they, they really change society in two specific ways. They change public opinion, and that changes business. So you remember where people wanted to recycle more and have less waste. Well, that put pressure on business to create more recyclable products mm -hmm. and, and packaging. And then nonprofits also change public policy because they work with uh, legislative uh, changes, work with legislators in the states or at the federal level, and then that changes government. So nonprofits really change society, and I've devoted my life to them. I worked for American Forest, a conservation group in Washington, D.C. for 30 years, and then I got excited and took this job out in Colorado, in Cortez, Colorado, in the Four Corners, to run what's called the Crow Canyon Archaeological Center, a fabulous place where we not only teach archaeology, but we do archaeology with continuing projects all the time. And the area is so incredibly rich for archaeology in the Southwest and well-preserved because of the lack of humidity and the heat that you can easily work on things that are a thousand years old. Or have gravestones that are made of wood from the 1800s. <laughs> <laughs> Up on Boot Hill. <laughs> exactly. Uh, and uh, then I came back here kind of in retirement, but I saw that uh, this position was available part-time, uh, executive director of uh, the Captain Avery Museum here in Shadyside, Maryland, and decided that I could share my knowledge and get involved with a local organization and joined up about three and a half years ago. So I've been here that long. And it's been exciting because what we did was completely renovate the building, which is the home of Captain Avery originally. It's been added on to over the years. But we did the complete renovation and then we redesigned our whole museum uh, and rethought it, reimagined what it could be. And uh, we just opened on July 18th, and we're thrilled. That's wonderful. I mean, it's perfect timing, right? <laughs> it is. <laughs> For it me, is. anyway. <laughs> I'm so glad you're here. 
Well, and it was wonderful. So when I was when I was driving up here, you guys are kind of tucked back into a nice cozy little corner and then, you know, you park in the parking lot and then you walk through this gorgeously done little garden and there's a small <laughs> boat shed and then you come into the museum and it is a house. So who was Captain Avery and what's up with this house? Captain Avery, Salem Avery, uh, was a child of Long Island, uh, New York, where he was raised in an oystering and farming family. Uh, and then, of course, in his time, and I'm talking the 1830s, 1840s, uh, the oyster populations declined dramatically up in New York, primarily because of pollution and predation and overfishing, perhaps. Uh, so he, like so many other men of his time, went to better oyster waters, and that happened to be Maryland. Uh, he came down here and met a woman that lived on the Mayo Peninsula, next peninsula up, uh, married her, she was a widow, and they had uh, nine children. He built this house in 1859, 1860, it's on the National Register. It was just a small one-room cabin at one time. Then it was added on to another room on, off the side, and then they eventually uh, added a loft upstairs. Uh, it had to be moved back from the West River, which is right out here on our front lawn, three times because of climate change and raising water. So at Captain Avery Museum today, we like to say that we tell the stories of three centuries of Chesapeake Bay history. The first being the 19th century when the captain came here and married Lucretia, had nine children, uh, and worked as a farmer and a landowner and an oysterman in the winter. Uh, when he got a little older, he became what they call a by-boat captain. So when you're no longer able to tong in those oysters uh, as you get some age, then uh, you run a by-boat. So you go out, you put your flag up, and all the oyster boats come around and give you their catch and then you take it up to the processing plants, primarily in Annapolis or Baltimore here. So that's what he did for a living. And then the 20th century, we tell in this room, the great room that we're in here, this was added on in the 1920s. Uh, and the house went through a lot of changes in the 20th century. The captain died, I think it was 1889, and the family kept the house for quite a while. But eventually in the 20s, it was sold to a group of Masons, a Masonic temple from Washington, D.C. area, primarily Jewish Masons, including two of the sons of labor leader Samuel Gompers. Uh, they all got together and bought this place, not as a Masonic temple, but as a group of men, a group of families, and uh, they called it the National Masonic Fishing Club, which was quite a grandiose name for it. And perhaps other Masons did come here. History is so fond of grand <laughs> names, I swear. I, they get grander and grander every episode I go somewhere. <laughs> I just think it's really wonderful. And, and they probably did have some really good Masonic gatherings here. But eventually, by the, by the war, just after the war, uh, they sort of lost the Masonic label on this place, and it was simply a group of Jewish families that continued to run and operate this structure and bring their families here on the weekends and the summers. So that's sort of the 20th century here. The 21st century is what happens in our rain gardens. I mentioned the house had to be moved two or three times. Well, we're experiencing the effects of climate change right now, as, as we all recognize with uh, extreme weather, extreme fires out west, extreme rain here 
tornadoes in Maryland last week. <laughs> Very unusual occurrence. Uh, but what we try to do in our rain gardens is show people how they can change their uh, landscapes around their homes uh, to trap and filter and slow rainwater before it re-enters the aquifer and therefore the Chesapeake Bay. So the three centuries of history are told in this one building, 19th, 20th, and 21st. That's really amazing. I mean, you guys are kind of covering a lot of a lot of uh, centuries with one house. <laughs> a lot of ground. <laughs> I am kind of curious. I'm not sure if you know the answer to this, but how in the world back in those days would they move a house? It was logs. You would lift a house up and put it on logs and roll it and move the logs and roll. Wow. You know, move it and move the log over and roll it over there and move it there. And yeah. Okay. Well, it was a very small house at the time. That that is fair. Yeah. I'm looking at it now and yeah. I see quite a bit of space. But I, I mean, it had it no sense. indoor plumbing. It, it obviously you had a privy and then you had an outdoor kitchen that was not attached to the place where you could, you know, heat up food and cook food and not heat up the house. So the you know, and I have to say, I'm a huge fan, especially in you know these riverside communities where a huge part of the diet was going to be fish. I think that it was probably a really great idea to have those uh, those kitchens outside. Absolutely, <laughs> so the whole place didn't always reek of fish. <laughs> and if you and or if you've been here for the summer and you know what humidity is like, you probably not want to heat up your home. Yeah, it's killing me. Slowly. I don't even like turning my stove on at home in the summer. <laughs> <laughs> so Captain Avery, uh, he was a captain because he, you know, obviously owned a lot of different vessels. But I really would love to kind of talk more about the oyster wars of the Chesapeake Bay. <laughs> and I was saying this to you earlier, but it's perfect because just yesterday I finished a book called Oyster Wars in the Chesapeake Bay. I mean, I kind of heard oyster wars and I thought, oh, that just sounds ridiculous. Like, I'm sure that that's not really, a, you know, I'm like, oh, that's you know, a little bit of you know, creativity thrown in there. No, it was deadly and it was serious and it was freaking insane. I know, it was, yeah, it just shows you what a valuable commodity oysters were. I and mean, people often joke about, you know, how brave that first man was to actually eat an oyster because they're not, many people find them unappealing to look at. And coming difficult. from coming from someone who's not used to a lot of seafood being in Nevada, That's uh, right. I think coming oysters don't Nevada. look super appealing. <laughs> and they're not easy to collect or to get out of their shell. I mean, there's a real art and science to uh, opening an oyster shell. Uh, so I'm not sure who that person was that ate that first oyster, but people have loved them ever since. Uh, and the Native Americans, you know, you can tell there's a lot of sites here in Maryland, prehistoric sites that are you know, the telltale sign of oyster piles. And I mean tremendous oyster piles. Uh, things that can change the shoreline of the river or water. There's so many oysters. Mm -hmm. So people have been eating them for a very, very long time, thousands and thousands of years. Uh, and yes, there were oyster wars uh, between Maryland and Virginia. And again, it had to do with, are they protecting the resource or are they protecting the oystermen? And the laws were different in those two different states, and they still are today. Uh, although, I guess the competition is not as, as heavy here for oyster. But oysters, as soon as they started being harvested, especially in New York, on Long Island, and other areas, they just became this commodity that everyone wants. So they kind of were discovered in the Long Island area before Chesapeake Bay was really known for being a big oyster platform. 
Is that right, or am I correct? Uh, well, the Native Americans were eating oysters down here for that's true. Tens I guess I'm thinking more of like mass as a commercial mass production. Yeah, uh, instead of just you know sustainably. I guess I, I wouldn't say they may have been discovered earlier in New York, but they were exploited earlier in okay. New York because New York was a big city and it grew. And then of course Baltimore would be right behind it mm -hmm. in terms of the timing and the. But, uh, and as I mentioned earlier, there's still oyster wars between France and England right now where one country is letting uh, oystermen work the waters earlier than the other and that causes that competition there. Why can't we be out if they're out? And they might be getting the, a bigger haul because they started two weeks before us. Mm -hmm. So uh, people are fighting over them. But, you know, restaurants in Denver and, you know, in Oklahoma and Kansas, they wanted oysters. And this is in the 1800s. <laughs> in the 1800s. Like and they were shipped out there by railroad. I mean, massive quantities. We have an exhibit uh, in the museum on the number of bushels that were trapped and harvested and imported. And it's just tremendous until the drop came. And the drop came here as well as it did in New York. But and it so came later here. And so Captain Avery started off in Long Island, and then he came here, got married, and then he started doing oyster. Would you say oystering? Oystering, oystering. absolutely. He was an oysterman. He was an oysterman, <laughs> but oystering was one of those things that you did during the winter months. That's right. Why? Uh, because that's when the oysters are best to be taken. I mean, that's the life cycle of the oyster. And also, it allows for you to do farming and the rest of the year, which is what the captain did. He owned a lot of land around here. He grew a lot of crops. He had, uh, you know, not, he had livestock, I'll say, uh, to help work and also to raise and chickens and things like that. So you could be a farmer in the summer and then make a great deal of actual cash doing oystering in the winter. And I don't know, myself, whenever I think about it, I'm like, oh, oysters, you know, that's kind of like a fancy restaurant food. Yes. Um, and I mean, but the reason why it was such a hot commodity is because people loved it and people were willing to pay for it. Willing to pay for it. And it's not easy to get. It's not like, you know, anybody can provide you with an oyster. It's hard work going out there in the winter. The weather's terrible. It's cold. It's windy. It's rainy. It's, it's snowing. Dangerous. It's dangerous. It's very dangerous. People die at every season oystering. Um, and maybe that's why they're valued a little bit more. Yeah. As they should be. Mm -hmm. So he did the oystering during the winter when it was, you know, he couldn't do other things and they ended up having quite a few children. Were the children raised in this house? They then? were. They had, uh, he and Lucretia who, as I said, was a widow, but a childless widow before they met. Uh, they, she had nine children, uh, seven lived to adulthood. And actually their youngest child got married first, which is kind of interesting. That is but interesting. yes, they raised all their children here. And the family kept the house for quite a while after uh, his son inherited it, whose name was uh, Walter Salem, Oregon, uh, Oregon, Walter oh. Salem <laughs> Avery. <laughs> That's okay. It's Salem, true. Oregon. Uh, and, um, and it did stay in the family for quite a while, so it did get passed down. But the family uh, also owned a great deal of land, and that kind of got apportioned away to the different children. So he ended up becoming, like, he was a pretty successful guy. Very successful, very well known in the community. It's interesting, Shadyside was not called Shadyside during his lifetime. Uh, it was called the Swamp. <laughs> because As much it of was. everywhere in this area, to be honest. <laughs> and uh, right after he passed away, in about the 18, early 1890s, they decided to put a post office in here. The people asked for a post office. 
and they decided they really didn't want to call it the swamp. So they had to come up with a name and they kind of took a poll and Shadyside won. But uh, the captain lived here before that when it was the swamp, but he was a very influential man. I don't think he, I could say he was famous. You're not going to find his name in books about the Chesapeake or Maryland necessarily, but locally he bought and sold so much land, uh, worked closely with the um, really formerly enslaved black families in this area. And in fact, some of the land that he sold ended up being the site of uh, St. Matthew's Methodist Church here. And then he was involved in the building of the other Methodist Church, Centenary, also in town, on land that he owned at one time. So he was a very much a sort of civic leader and everybody knew him, uh, and that he was one of the wealthier people here on the, on the peninsula, but not famous. So not famous, but wealthy. No. They were well-to-do. His wife could not read or write, but this is where it's kind of interesting. So she did have a particular item, one of the items that we wanted to talk about. One of the items we want to talk about is the Bible, a family Bible that was published in 1856, and it was given to Lucretia when she married uh, Captain Salomon Avery. And uh, it was given to her by the captain's father, interestingly enough, William Avery. And I think perhaps it was a way to encourage her to learn to read and write. She was very helpful to her husband uh, in terms of keeping books and keeping track of money and oysters and you know farm produce and running the farm and raising, obviously being pregnant for a lot of her uh, adult life, um, but very helpful in running the farm. And of course, he'd be gone days, maybe even weeks at a time in the winter oystering. And it was left to Lucretia to take care of the family and look after the livestock and everything. So, mm -hmm. uh, But the Bible is very beautiful, very illustrated, and it's got all the recordings of family births and family marriages and family deaths. And it was a large family with seven uh, adult children. Uh, and so they've filled in margins. They've written all over it to, in order to record those important dates of the family. And that, if I'm not mistaken, that was a pretty common thing to do back in those days. All the Bibles that you received during this time period had, it was basically your own genealogical history on top of... That's you know, right. It's kind of... This person begot this person. Yeah, exactly. It's kind of a unique way to relate you and your family to what's going on in the book in mm -hmm. the Bible. It's mm -hmm. continuing the history of adding your family's history to the history of mankind. And lucky sense. for us that that happened because it actually provided us with a lot of really good historical a records. A lot of good references and chronological orders and all sorts of good things. Yes, it's very beautiful too. So that's kind of a fun thing that we have here. Unfortunately, there's not a lot of truly Avery items that we have left. We have left things that may have been used in that period, but the things that truly belong to them are really quite few and far between. There are a lot of descendants that still live in the area and live in Connecticut and New York. There are Averys. I met some from Tennessee who were definitely related to the captain. So, you know, the family is far and wide, but finding things that actually belong to him is, is rare. The other thing we have is his banjo, and this was made by William Butcher up in Baltimore, we think circa 1848. It's one of only two that have the image of a dancing woman on the fretboard that are known to exist. So, you know, I mean, I used to pay, play the banjo a little bit, uh, and uh, I love the music. I think it was Mark Twain, however, who said, a gentleman is someone who knows how to play the banjo, but doesn't. 
<laughs> because it is a very loud mu- music. I think of it, it as like a boisterous instrument. It's a very boisterous musical instrument. And you can't quietly play the banjo in the corner somewhere. I mean, everybody knows you're playing a banjo, which is why Mark Twain said that, I guess. But, um, and, and, you know, Pete Seeger and others have said various things about banjos, like, you know, every child should be born with a banjo. And, no, it's they're a already joyful... born crying. <laughs> you don't need more noise. What? But it is joyful. I mean, it's, true. people want to dance and sing, and they're happy when they hear a banjo, I think. But uh, some people don't like it. So that, that's kind of a neat thing that we have. And then you start thinking, well, what was this man like if he owned a banjo? I mean, he must have enjoyed music or wanted to entertain people or wanted to learn an instrument or and he also had an organ and we see from his uh, estate and the will when he passed that they owned an organ so there was music in this family and uh, you know these little things can tell you something about not only how the people lived but maybe how they felt about life and how they enjoyed life. So what was the significance of having the dancing woman on the banjo? Was it a signature of the maker? It was a signature of the maker, and as I say, there's only two, two known that have that. How did the museum end up getting this banjo? Well, that's an and interesting I, story, because the man that lives right across the lane here, uh, Mr. Dunn, he was uh, very close friends with an Avery descendant, Erwood, or Woody uh, Avery. And, uh, Somehow, the banjo ended up in Woody Avery's attic or barn or something, and he gave it to Mr. Dunn because Mr. Dunn lived next door to the Avery house, and Mr. Dunn donated it to us. So it's kind of fun that it's one of the few things we have that actually survived that that the captain owned. And it definitely made its way back. Made its way back to his house. That's a pretty great story. Yeah. (laughs) What about the Bible? How did you guys end up with a Bible? Oh, that's a good question. That was also donated by a family member. Well, and it makes sense since they had so many descendants that stayed around in this area and then traveled elsewhere. I mean, those kind of things are what get passed down. Yes, yes. And someone recently gave us a gramophone uh, that's from the time period or a little after, but he believed that the Avery family owned it. I don't know if the captain himself actually owned it or his wife and descendants. But uh, So yeah, we've collected a few things over the years, but we really want to focus on sort of lifestyle and evolution of lifestyle in Shadyside and in the sort of waterman or oysterman uh, community. Uh, and we have another room of our museum that talks a little bit about the 20th century. So 1890s, Shadyside gets a name. It's become Shadyside, <laughs> and everybody knows it by that. Which is funny, because back that. then, I'm sure, I'm sure Shady <laughs> didn't mean, oh, that's Shady, you know. But no, no, when it I was meant, driving yeah. down, and I saw the sign, I was like, oh, Shadyside. Am I going, like, on the shady side of the tracks? <laughs> the shady side of life. <laughs> <laughs> that's funny that you would have that. I've always thought it was just nice and cool, shady. Exactly. But <laughs> yeah, exactly. But, you know, like, just how time and language changes. It must be you, you young people from Nevada, maybe. I know. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> You don't want to deal with us. But there were a lot of changes in the 20th century. So in the uh, 19th century, you had a few family farms. We actually have a, a diorama here that contains a map that shows how few and far between the homes were in the 1800s here on Shadyside. And the, one of the interesting things is there were as many freed black families living on this peninsula as there were white families after the Civil War. 
Uh, and a lot of the uh, formerly enslaved people were emancipated by their owners in the 1820s and 30s because the owners were Quakers. And the Quakers encouraged their members to emancipate their slaves much earlier than the Emancipation Proclamation uh, after the Civil War or during the Civil War. So uh, Quakerism actually has one of its founding places just up the road in a place called Galesville. What's, so what is a Quaker? <laughs> I mean... <laughs> well, the term, it, it, it is a religion uh, that was uh, created by, and I really should know more about this, created by a gentleman. And actually the word Quaker it was kind of a disparaging label that other people put on them. They are really the friends, right? They're called the friends and the friends meeting home. And it was basically founded in America in Galesville, just up the road. So many of the la uh, people and, and uh, the land that they owned around here was owned by Quakers. And many of them, as I say, emancipated their enslaved people much earlier in the 1820s and 30s. So you had quite a mix of the families. Yeah, quite a mix, right, right. Um, unfortunately, the diversity has gone down a little bit. We're probably only 12 to 15% African-American on the peninsula now, uh, after the changes of the 20th century. What happened was so many people started building summer homes and weekend homes here, back when the Jewish Masons were building here in the 20s and 30s. So people would come down from Baltimore, out from DC, and spend the, the weekend or summer weeks out here. Well then, all of a sudden there were roads. You no longer traveled by the river and the water. They built roads out here. So people could realize they could commute. You can commute to Annapolis, to Baltimore, to Washington, D.C. So why not live here full time? And a lot of these old summer houses got changed into permanent residences. And this became, in the 20th century, a bedroom community. But first it went through that whole sort of the recreation side of the Chesapeake Bay. The 19th century was making a living from the bay. The 20th century was enjoying the recreational opportunities. You fished for fun not to make a living, and you boated for fun not to make a living. So all of that change took place here as well as many other places along the coast during the 20th century. Um, so many of the houses you see had their beginning as a really early summer you know, weekend home kind of place, and now they're permanent. And unfortunately, a lot of them have been ripped down and large mini mansions have been built here as well. Yes, I do see a lot of mini mansions around. Yep, so the demographics changed and then, you know, people uh, wanted to live here full time, so they made it into what they want and they have waterfront property. So we're talking about kind of the change throughout time, but I'm curious, how, what did the oyster, oyster ring profession changed through time. I mean, we kind of have an idea of what it was like in Captain Avery's time. It was really, really rough. There was a war going on. I mean, it was your winter time, only way to make money. And then continuing on from that time, how, what, what evolved from that? Well, what evolved from that was a, just the same thing that had happened in New York is the reduced populations of oysters. Uh, and now it probably is very difficult to make your living. It, it's still hard work. I mean, that has not gotten any easier. You still have to go out in winter. It's still raining, cold, snowing, windy, and dangerous. There's no doubt about it. But the quantity is not there for an industry. So we know, uh, we work with the Anne Arundel Watermen's Association, which is a great organization here. Um, 40, 50 members? 
and most of them are not making all their living from oystering. They're doing the oystering in the winter. They do something else in the summer, in the spring and fall. So that Whether it's really farming changed. or a job or whatever. Yep. Well, so we have um, at the at the Calvert Marine Museum, we actually have an, an old oyster shell that was found, I believe it was found in a Virginia archaeological dig of some sort. Yes. Um, but it was it's a 10-inch long oyster. Wow. I mean, it's gigantic. And I think, I mean, that just kind of also goes to show, you know, <laughs> when they were plentiful and had time to grow, you know, they, they could actually be pretty big. And I mean, a small oyster like that, or a big oyster like that back in that day could feed a whole small family for a meal. You <laughs> 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 huge. Well, I, I clipped an article out of the New York Times a couple of years ago, the same thing. It was this giant oyster shell uh, that was found. But, you know, oysters are really amazing. We estimate that the population of oysters back in, let's say, 1900 or 1850, they could clean the entire estuary of the Chesapeake Bay in a week. And now it would take a year oh, wow. to do the same thing because there's just not the population there. And so we're very much aligned with and helping the restoration of oyster. We're going to have folks here. Our oyster festival is scheduled this year for Saturday, October 15th from 1230 to 5. It's a blast. All the oysters you can eat, first of all. We have uh, oyster shooters uh, and uh, raw oysters, and then, of course, you can get them cooked and fried, and whatever I was going to say, you you're want. not selling me on this raw stuff, but I would definitely do some Well, we ones. sell the raw, but our <laughs> restaurants uh, come in, they'll stay fry them and do whatever else you want to them. Uh, we'll also have other kinds of food as well, if you're not an oyster eater, and beer and wine and all that good stuff. Um, but... Yes, we've seen the reduced population, so we support the restoration work that's being done by several organizations uh, around here. I mean, in raising awareness and helping to foster sustainability. And the environmental value that they do. So that, that third century, the 21st century, is very important to us. I talked about the rain garden out there and slowing and filtering rainwater. Uh, that's the other reason. We've got to keep the Chesapeake Bay clean. We've got to restore the cleanliness to it and keep it clean. Oysters do amazing amount of work uh, keeping them clean, so reseeding oysters, using their shells to, uh, to create barriers and riprap, uh, but also you know, just telling people about it, so how they can help, how they can change their landscape to um, help clean the water. One of the things that I was reading in this book was about how, you know, when they would go out and collect, they would dredge for all these oysters and they would have the oyster shells. They weren't throwing the oyster shells back where the beds were. They were using them for fertilizer or they actually built like um, the, the, I think it's the JCL Lore, the Lore Oyster House that we have part of our museum. It's constantly sinking and we have to do renovations because they actually built it on an island of oysters. I mean, island they, they, of oyster shells. So what's important for the oyster is having these oyster shells because I think, and correct me if I'm wrong, but it seems like, you know, they can't survive if they're completely covered in mud and silt. But if they have the substrate like the old oyster shells to the spat to collect onto, that's how they basically restart their regrowing process. That's right. That's right. They need something to glom onto and uh, something to seed something to hold the seed while they're seeding oysters. Yeah, that's really interesting. I mean, the, I think we would find a lot more oyster shells hidden underneath every piece of this property if and, we looked. Yeah, I mean, and even not looking, I mean, I can tell you most of the people's houses that I've been to, they usually have like a almost like paved in oyster parts of their yard and stuff. And not that that's that big of an issue today. Yeah. But I mean, if you can imagine, you know, back in like the 1850s, 1860s, I mean, they were just... 
we have a we have a photograph that is really interesting, and it's kind of comparing, you know, um, the American buffalo, those huge piles of the buffalo skulls that right. you see in the textbooks. You know, they actually have some of those kinds of similar photographs of oyster shells. Yep, and they're literally mountains <laughs> that aren't being put back in the water. Um, but I, a, part, a huge part of it is they just didn't even know. Yeah, they had no idea. And, you know, also the different, and you've probably read this in the book, the different ways of harvesting them. So the oysters were always tonged at the beginning, where you have two giant rakes that are attached. And when you open it, it closes the rake at the bottom. Anyway, that was one way. And then there was dredging. And uh, that has been outlawed in a lot of places and, and certainly close to the water. I mean, it can be very damaging if you're disturbing a lot more than oysters. You and know, that's you're what not, happens with the dredge is you drop it down and then you just pull you drag and collect it along everything the, on the bottom and then everything. you toss out and sort through. And it's, That's right, and it's disturbed everything at the bottom. So that's another part of the oyster wars. How do you get it and where are you getting those oysters? But more, more importantly, how are you getting that out of the water? So in the 21st century, do they tong for oysters or do they dredge? <laughs> Oh, is it the age-old question? <laughs> it's it's environmental dredging. <laughs> okay, interesting. So it's uh, only in certain places where the water is below uh, a certain depth. Uh, yeah, it's very specific. Okay. Yeah. I don't. You know, I can, I don't think I've honestly ever eaten an oyster before. <laughs> and after reading this book and coming here, I think I might have to go to one of these festivals and, uh, and well, try we'll it out. Ex we'll expect to see you back October 16th. I mean, that would be wonderful. <laughs> I'm game. Let's do it. Good. <laughs> well, thank you so much for being a part of my podcast and sharing with my viewers and teaching us about Captain Avery. Well, thank you so much for coming. I've really enjoyed it. Me as well. Thank you. Bye.